Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to Hallows. Uh, if you are, well, I guess, if you're new uh, here for a while, we've been going through the gospel according to Luke, right? And today our, our focus is going to be on chapter 13, verses 10 to 17. Right? If anyone here doesn't know me, uh, my name is Corey Shiraishi. I've been at Hallows for almost eight years now. Uh, before here, growing up when I was a kid, I went to a church down south in Kent, um, and I did the whole like Sunday school youth group thing, right? Probably similar to many of you, not all of you, which is that's fine, right? When I was there, I learned a lot of uh, memory verses, right, and like kids' Bible stories, things like that. And I'm glad for that, right? It is a good, good thing, right? Um, but I would say this: while they're a good place to start, that is actually a really bad place to end. And why? The reason is because often when you learn just one verse or just one story, you don't necessarily get the context that goes with it, right? For example, how many of you here know John 16? Yeah, okay, so a bunch of you. Okay, how many of you, the same people who know it, know who Jesus was talking to? Okay, we got one. <laughs> we got one. This is the guy who's been to seminary. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. Or this is a. <laughs> yep. Perfect. Okay. So why why am I bringing this up? Right. I, I'm bringing this up because I want to emphasize something about Luke that came up in earlier sermons. All right, and that others have noted, but it's not obvious if you just read one small segment at a time. Right. And it's that Luke's gospel is not strictly chronological. Okay? So he is arranging his material thematically, and he's not alone. He's not the only person to do this, right? All of the gospel authors, right, they arrange the material differently, right? So John structures his account around, like, key festivals and miracles and patterns of, like, seven and three and things like that, right? He record, records Jesus going to Jerusalem something like three times for, like, various feasts. But in Luke's account, his account is oriented around geography, Right, so he starts off with uh, the prologue, which is kind of uh, Jesus' birth and the infancy material. And then around chapter 4, uh, Jesus starts his ministry, and it's all in Galilee. And it's in Galilee up until chapter 9-ish. Right? And then from 9 to 19, we're on the road to Jerusalem. And then we get to Jerusalem, right? and we're there to the end of the book. And then Acts picks up, and it's kind of a similar structure. Um, Jesus commissions his disciples to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the book is structured in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. All right? So he, Luke is setting up, you know, I guess when the Holy Spirit inspired Luke, right, to write this account, he wasn't, you know, telling Luke, like, hey, Luke, you've got to make sure everything lines up exactly in chronological order. Right? And this doesn't need to be a problem. It doesn't need to be like, oh, there's a mistake. It's the wrong order, right? That's not the point. That's not the point of Luke's account, right? It's not a travelogue with exact dates. So why does this matter, right? It, it matters because it teaches us something about how to read Luke's account, right? The stories are being arranged for literary reasons, right? The sequence of stories conveys meaning, right? It's not that stuff just happened to be in that order. And so, like, you know, that's the way he told it, right? And that, that doesn't mean errors, right? Just if you take this and you apply it, right, you'll become a better reader of scripture, right? You don't read it naively like a children's book, which is fine when you're a child, right? But as you get older, right, you have to start to pay attention to these things. So as we 
you know, we're going to start wide and we're going to start to narrow in our passage, right? And we're going to put, you know, kids' things behind us and we're going to read like adults and we're going to pay attention to the context. Overall, big picture, Luke's gospel account is explaining who Jesus is, right? And it's how Jesus' mission is the fulfillment of God's plan for history. And Luke likes to emphasize a lot of reversal, a lot of elevation of the lowly and the humbling of the exalted. It's also setting up the book for Acts. And in Acts, all the nations are called to faith in this Jewish Messiah, right? Who, surprisingly, is rejected by many of his own people, right? All those themes kind of pop up in various places today. And with that, within that account, right? So we're in chapter 13. That's the middle of the Jerusalem journey, right? He's going from Galilee to Jerusalem, right? And this journey section has a lot of Jesus teaching about what it means to walk with him, right? There's a lot of stuff about discipleship and about the ethics of God's kingdom in here, right? At the end of chapter 11, Jesus calls out this series of woes against the scribes and the Pharisees for various practices that they have, right? And it says that from then on, they started to oppose him. And in chapter 12, the very next story, right, Jesus starts this extended discussion with the crowds and with his disciples. And it begins by mentioning the Pharisees, you know, the, thing, the people he was talking to in the immediately prior passage. Right? And if you read chapter 12 straight through, you realize that all of chapter 12 is connected. Right? There's a core set of themes right, that, are about, that are emerging, you know, that emerge in that chapter that are about being ready for a day of judgment. And there's a commentator, Joel Green, with uh, the Nicot Luke commentary. Uh, and he calls that section um, vigilance in the face of eschatological crisis. All right, so it's being ready for the day of judgment. Right. And if you've got a Bible open, um, you can scroll along or, or flip along if you're old school, right? Because um, we're going to summarize these passages in, in Luke 12 at a run. So if you start at the beginning of chapter 12, Jesus says, beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, because the day is coming where secret things will be made known. So fear the one who has the authority to throw people into hell rather than those who can only kill the body. Don't worry about worldly things, right? Acknowledge Christ when you're accused in front of synagogue rulers or you'll be died. All right, now verse 13, guard against greed for worldly possessions because God might demand your life tonight. Don't worry about worldly things. God will take care of those, but rather seek God's kingdom. Verse 35, be ready for the master's return. Blessed are those who are doing their jobs when he returns, but those who fail to do what's required will be punished. Judgment is coming at a time you don't expect. In verse 41, Peter asks, hey, like, is this about like us or everyone? You know? And Jesus responds by asking, hey, who's faithful? Again, those who are doing their jobs when the master shows up will be rewarded, and they'll be put in charge of the master's possessions. Those who are not doing their jobs, who are beating the other servants or getting drunk, they'll be punished when the master shows up at an unexpected time. In verse 49, there's a division between those who are faithful and those who are not. So you should understand what time it is, just like you understand the weather, right? And it is the time to get right with the accuser before the judgment comes. Do you feel that emphasis? There's a lot of variations, but it's the same theme the whole way through. There's this day of judgment that's coming. Some people are going to be ready, and some people are not. And that theme doesn't just abruptly end when chapter 13 starts. Right? And from here, we're going we're to slow down a little bit. 
Luke 13, 1 to 6. At that time, some people came and reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And he responded to them, do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed, do you think that they were more sinful than all the other people who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. And you see how when Luke introduces this next mini-episode, he does it by connecting it to the previous event. He said, at that time, right? And the question that they ask him is, hey, are those who are like suffering these horrible fates, are they, are they more sinful than others? And Jesus says no, right? Jesus says that those who suffer horrible fates aren't necessarily more sinful than others. But his main point in saying all that is warning people to repent because a horrible fate is coming for them if they don't. And then he tells a parable in verse 6. And notice that the parable is connected with the word and, like we're still on the same topic. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, listen, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it waste the soil? He replied to him, sir, leave it this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. Perhaps it will produce fruit next year. But if not, you can cut it down. All right, so the fruit tree, it should have been fruitful, right? That's what it should do. But it hasn't, and it should be cut down. But there's a vineyard worker who is trying to have mercy on the tree. Right? Give it one more year. I'm going to give it fertilizer. I'm going to dig around it, take care of it. I'm going to give it everything it needs. And if it continues to be useless, then cut it down. But there's, there's this last chance to bear fruit. And it's the same theme, right? A judgment is coming, and some people are going to be fruitful, and some people are not. Right, and this, this theme now has been on repeat for over a chapter, right? And at this point, we finally arrive actually at our passage for the day. Right? But before we stop and focus on our passage, we're going to skip ahead to what comes afterwards. What's the context after? All right, so we're skipping to uh, chapter 13, verse 22, for those of you scrolling along. Uh, there it's the passage about the narrow door. And Jesus says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because it's about to get closed. Right? And once it does, you won't get in. So it's the same theme. Right? There's a time coming, and some people, they're going to get in, and some people are not. And finally, in verse 31, Luke adds in like this final conversation. And this time it's about Herod. Right? And Herod was the Roman puppet king over the Jews. Uh, and he apparently wants to kill Jesus. And here Jesus cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. All right, so we talk about Jerusalem and Herod. And way back at the beginning, in chapter 11, we had the scribes and the Pharisees. And all of them are opposed to Jesus. Right? And here, it's not that God is looking forward to bringing down a justice hammer, right? Jesus says, I want to gather them. But they were not willing. 
So in Luke 19, 44, at the end of the, Jerus- uh, the, the journey to Jerusalem, as Jesus is entering Jerusalem, he weeps for the city, saying, they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. And that's Jesus showing up. And in 70 AD, everything that Jesus was talking about, it happened, right? There was a Jewish uprising, and the Romans came and they sacked the city. The city, the whole of it, and the temple, they were destroyed. And it's not like God was rejoicing over that, right? right? He loved them. He loved the Jews. He loved his people. He came to them, but many of them were unwilling to receive him. And that in itself, that is a, that's a warning to us, right, who are God's people now. But this is the context of our passage. It's been, you know, it's been a, a challenging couple of uh, weeks of sermons. Um, yeah, anyway, so I said Luke, he's arranging his material thematically, right? And these stories, they're not following each other just because that happened to be the next thing. It's been the same theme before our passage, and it's the same theme after our passage. So if you didn't even read our passage, and you just had to take a guess, what do you think our passage is about? I'll describe it like this. Jesus came, and somebody got healed, and somebody gets humiliated. We're about to see a case study of some of God's people rejecting Jesus, and some people following. So, if you're scrolling along through all of the stuff that we covered, you're, and you're really paying attention, you may have noticed that I skipped over verses 18 to 21, right? And there's a reason why I did that. So if you're reading uh, from the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, uh, notice at the start of verse 18, it says, he said, therefore, and then Jesus tells two parables. So generally, if something happens, and then you say, therefore, and then you say something else, the two things are related. Right? This is grammar, right? Easy. <laughs> Um, but what does that mean? It means that verses 18 to 21, they're explaining today's passage, right? So Jesus is giving us an interpretation of the story. All right, so we should read them. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and what can I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the sky nested in its branches. All right, so we have a small seed becoming a huge tree. Again, he said, what, what can I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until it was leavened. So we have a small bit of leaven, and it leavens a huge amount of flour. And I'm going to leave the rest of that passage to Jake for next week. Uh, But whatever our passage means, it has something to do with God's kingdom starting small and seeming insignificant and ending up huge and important. So that is our context, right? And that was a lot, right? Like, that probably took, like, 10 minutes just to go through all that, right? But the question that we have before us as we actually turn and look to our passage, I promise you we're about to, (laughs) is what is this little episode trying to tell us, right? What is it contributing to those themes, right, that are all around? Why is it here, specifically? And what does it have to do with being ready for a day of judgment? And who is being faithful? What does it have to do with something small becoming something big? So, with that, we're actually going to turn and look at our passage. Luke 13, 10 to 17. As he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, a woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for over 18 years. 
She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called out to her, Woman, you are free of your disability. Then he laid his hands on her, and instantly she was restored and began to glorify God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded by telling the crowd, There are six days when work should be done, therefore come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, Hypocrites, doesn't each one of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath and lead it to water? Satan has bound this woman, a daughter of Abraham, for 18 years. Shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he had said these things, all his adversaries were humiliated, but the whole crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things he was doing. Okay, so there's a lot of interesting things, I think, in this passage. But the one that first jumped out to me when I read this is that this woman's disability is described as bondage to Satan. Right? It's caused by a disabling spirit. Do you find that strange? Right? I mean, I think it's pretty common for us as modern, educated Americans right, to ignore the possibility that this could happen today. Right? And maybe, you know, like since it's in the Bible, it could happen back then, like, you know. But, like, for instance, Jake here has been dealing with back pain for a couple months, and I'm pretty sure nobody, until me this week by a text, came up and said, like, hey, maybe you just have a disabling spirit from Satan. <laughs> right? But... I mean, but the reality is, the world of the Bible and the world of today, it's the same world, right? It's not fiction. Angels and demons are real. And they're actually people who are part of our congregation, who have interacted with spirits, right? This is a reality that we, we can't ignore by just saying, I believe in science and, like, burying our heads in the sand and ignoring mountains of testimony, right? From throughout history, throughout the rest of the world, right? And especially when it's in our congregation and it's in our scriptures, Right? So I think some of us maybe need to change, change our mindset and try and understand what the Bible is teaching us. There is a biblical scholar, uh, scholar named uh, Dr. Michael Heiser that I respect, and he used to say, if it's weird, it's important. Sadly, he passed away this week, and I, I just wanted to give him a shout-out. Um, so it's weird, right? It's weird that it's described as bondage to Satan. Right? But what, what about it is important? What can we learn? Well, Throughout Luke's gospel account, many of the healings that Jesus performs are connected uh, to the forgiveness of sin or release from spiritual influence. Right? Uh, in the, in our the, like liturgy, the passages we read in Isaiah, uh, that passage about setting the oppressed free—that's that's at the opening of Jesus's ministry in Luke's gospel. It's like Luke 4, 18. This is me going off script a little bit. <laughs> Anyways, it's also in Luke 5, chapter 7, or 5, 17, with a paralytic whose friends lower him through the roof, right? Jesus forgives the sins and then heals him. And then it's in Luke 6, 18, with the crowd, right? Before Jesus gives a sermon on the plane. And it's in a bunch of other places, right? And when we get to Acts, which Luke also writes, Luke recounts Peter saying that Jesus went about healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil. Healing those under the tyranny of the devil, right? So it's clear, right? There is this connection between sickness, sin, and being bound to Satan, right? And so we need to ask, what does this mean? Does it mean sickness is a punishment? 
right? Have all these people done some extra heinous sin, and so God has just handed them over to the devil to be tortured with diseases and disabilities as some sort of special punishment. I think a lot of people feel this way. I've talked to some people who feel this way. Right? But the answer is no. And why, why do I say that? Why? From the context, right? What was the story right before our passage today? Right? It was about Galileans who suffered tragic fates. Right? It's about people that get crushed by a falling tower. And Jesus explicitly says it's not because they were more sinful than everyone else around them. Right? And in the very next story, right, after that, our current story, we see this woman. And here, she's been suffering for 18 years. Remember, Luke put these stories next to each other for a reason. Right? So we need to remember what Jesus just said. It's not because she's more sinful. And then Jesus goes and he calls her a daughter of Abraham. And if you look back in Luke 3, that term is being used for people who are in God's kingdom. Right? Right? So this is not a punishment of this woman. So then, what does it mean? Right? What, what does it mean? And I think if we want to understand what being bound to Satan means, really practically, we need to examine what it is we mean when we say the word sin. Okay, so the standard Western metaphors for talking about sin are either legal or accounting metaphors. Right? So it's an offense against God's law or a financial debt to God. And then we say things like, all right, Jesus, he took my punishment for breaking the law or he paid my debt to reset the bank account. Right? Um, and recently I was talking with someone and these were the only metaphors that he had for understanding sin. Right? And I'm not saying those metaphors are wrong. Right? We, we just had that parable about getting right with a judge. Right? That, is, that is a legal metaphor right there. So Jesus is using the same metaphors. But they're not the only metaphors. Okay? There's two other metaphors that were really common in the early church for talking about sin. And that was sin as sickness and sin as slavery. And if you pay attention, right, you'll see that those metaphors are used all throughout Scripture, including right here in Luke and in this passage. So, if we develop, if we want to develop our sense of, of what sin could mean uh, and kind of understand these metaphors in a more full-fleshed way, right, then we should look at the first place that sin is mentioned in the Bible. Right? And it's actually not Genesis 3. It's not the fall of Adam and Eve. It's actually the next story. It's Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. All right, so Cain and Abel, they're brothers, right? They both bring offerings to God, and Abel brings a better one, and God prefers Abel. And then we read this, Genesis 4, 5 to 7. He did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So here, sin's not being talked about as just a legal or moral offense. Right? Sin is described as an entity. It has desires. It wants Cain. Right? And Cain is commanded to rule over it. And if you think about what humanity was created for, God, God told us to rule over the earth, right? to spread God's image and goodness. But instead of ruling over sin, Cain was ruled by it. And the next thing that he does is he murders his brother. 
and God confronts him. And then Cain lies about it. He's like, I'm not my brother's keeper. I don't know where he is. And he complains about his punishment being too harsh. Like, hey, I, I might get killed. Right? Which, you know, like he just killed his brother. So if he happened to get killed by someone, you know, it'd be kind of kind of fitting. <laughs> right? But you know, Cain is so wicked, right? And he is unrepentant to the end. And this is why later Christians, they, they look at Cain and they see him as the prototypical sinner, right? Adam and Eve, yes, they sinned first, but Cain was fully enslaved to sin, All right? So 1 John 3.12 says, Cain was of the evil one. Adam and Eve, they fell, but Cain was of the evil one. And I think that's the next level, All right? And I think, you know, before we just bash Cain, right, we need to recognize that we've all experienced a little bit of what Cain experienced. I'm not talking about moral offenses. Hopefully, nobody here has killed a brother. All right. But we do experience sin trying to control us and trying to push us to harm ourselves, to harm others. Right. So we have, we have addictions. We have things that we know we, they're not good, but we just can't stop them. We can't stop ourselves. Right. And sometimes we don't even want to stop. Right? And some of us, we have diagnoses. We have things like depression or bipolar, right? And these feelings that are trying to control us. Like we can't control them. They try and take over. They want to make us live in ways that aren't good. And we have tendencies. And we have these patterns of behavior that take over, that take control of us. Right? We have anger, sadness. They make us hate others. They make us hurt each other, hurt ourselves. And I think it's important, as I list all those things, to remember we're talking about sin as slavery and sickness. Right? We're sick with sin. Right? We're enslaved to it. Additions, diagnoses, tendencies, that's not, those aren't necessarily transgressions, right? But it's something that wants to control you. And there are times, there are times when we give in, when we let ourselves be slaves to sin. Right? Paul says in Romans 6.16, don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one that you obey? either of sin leading to death, or of obedience leading to righteousness. All right, so just like Cain, we all have a choice, right? To rule over sin or to be ruled by it. Right? And we know, we know sometimes it rules over us. Right? And when it does, it leads to death and to destruction in our lives, right? just like Paul says. And it leads to death and destruction in the lives of those around us. Right? And it corrupts our bodies, our minds, our souls. Right? And that's the playing out of death. Right? So if you go back to what Jesus said in the previous story, right, he told the questioners to repent. And I think that's the same, same track that Paul was on. Right? Offer yourselves as obedient to God. Right? And if we're honest with, with ourselves, that's really hard. Right? If we're honestly trying to obey God, you'll realize it's a struggle. Right? It's a struggle to pray. It's, it's really tough to love others, especially when we're tired or we're hungry or we've had a bad day or our heads are in the wrong space for whatever reasons. Right? It's tough to obey. It's tough to rule over our sinful desires. It's tough to fight back against the passions of the flesh. And sometimes it feels like we are just too weak to do it, like we are bent over double, like we're crippled or disabled. We're unable to do it like we just have a disabling spirit, and what we need is healing. And so with that, I think it's time to turn and see how Jesus heals this woman 
with her disabling spirit. Now, Luke 13, 12 to 13. When Jesus saw her, he called out to her, Woman, you are free of your disability. And then he laid his hands on her, and instantly she was restored and began to glorify God. So Jesus, he sees her, right? And then he calls out to her. And then he speaks to her. And then he touches her. And I think the first thing to notice in all this is that Jesus initiates, right? And this should make sense to us, right? This is how we understand grace. Jesus comes to heal us, right? We don't earn it. We don't buy it. We don't force his hand. It is a gift from God to us. And that doesn't mean that we don't participate in any way or that we're completely inactive, but it starts with Jesus. And the next thing to notice is that it's at the touch that she is restored, And the significance of this might not be clear at first, because honestly, it was was not super clear to me either. But a few of the church fathers saw something important here. And if you're unfamiliar with that term, church fathers, it refers to Christian leaders, usually from the early centuries. And so there's one of them, Cyril of Alexandria, who was born in the late 300s, and he wrote a commentary on Luke. And when he gets to this section, he writes, the incarnation of the word, so that's Jesus, and his assumption of human nature took place for the overthrow of death and destruction, and of that envy nourished against us by the wicked serpent, who is the first cause of evil. And this is plainly proved to us by the facts themselves. And so he set free the daughter of Abraham from her protracted sickness, calling out and saying, Woman, thou art loosed from thy infirmity, a speech most worthy of God and full of supernatural power. For with the kingly inclination of his will, he drives away the disease, And he also lays his hands upon her, and immediately it says she was made straight. And hence, too, it is possible to see that his holy flesh bore in it the power and activity of God. There was his own flesh, and not that of some other son beside him, distinct and separate from him, as some most impiously imagine. All right, so you can see, my quote, he's talking about Jesus overthrowing death and destruction. All right which is that liberation from enslavement, the sin stuff that we've been talking about, right? But, but notice that it, it's Jesus' incarnation that starts the overthrow of death, right? And if we only understand Jesus' work as exclusively bearing the legal punishment for our sins, then we fail to understand how Christ's incarnation does anything other than just set up for his death later on, right? But if you think back to the fall, Humanity was separated from God, right? And so human nature, separated from God, becomes sick with sin, right? Subject to death, subject to corruption, right? This weakened human nature, right? Couldn't come close to God, right? And even when God was with Israel, he was still separated by barriers, by rituals. And there was only one person who could come into his presence once a year and only with careful preparation And then they would put up a cloud of incense covering the ark so he wouldn't see God and die. But when God became a man, he mingled God's nature and human nature together. So God and man together in one flesh. And the power of God purifies the sickness of human nature. There's another church father, Gregory the Theologian, writing in the the 300s, who wrote, For that which he has not assumed... He has not healed, but that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. 
And so what he's talking about there is how human nature as a whole is healed of the sickness of sin through the God-man, through Jesus Christ. Right? And the mystery of mingling God's nature with human nature, that is the incarnation. Right? And so Gregory's going to rattle on and say that if Jesus didn't have a human mind, then our minds aren't saved. And if Jesus didn't have a human soul, then our souls aren't saved. Right? And I'll admit, like, this stuff about the mystery of the incarnation, it's difficult to understand. Right? Alexa and I were chatting right before the service, like, this is complicated. <laughs> right? But I think that this is the idea that Cyril is pointing at. Right? Because at the end of his quote, he was aiming at a heresy called Nestorianism, right? which is trying to separate the human and the divine natures of God into different persons. Like, oh, Jesus couldn't be fully God and fully man. He had to be like two and like one. It's complicated. (laughs) Um, But Jesus' fully human body, right? Mind, spirit, soul, all of it, uh, bore in it the power and activity of God, right? Because Jesus is fully God too, right? And so as God, he has the power to heal and the authority to set free. And as he draws near and touches her, right, that separation that happened at the fall is undone, right? And later when Jesus goes to the cross, he even took on our death. And as Hebrews 2 says, Jesus shared in our flesh and blood so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death that is the devil, and set free those who are held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. So Jesus sets us free, and he heals us too. So with all that, I want to turn to the woman's response. Her response was to glorify God. She wasn't healed just to sit around and do nothing. Remember, we're traveling with Jesus on the road. So she's healed, right? So now she can walk and she can follow him. And as we think about what this means for us, think about the mustard seed. Right? Her back was fixed, right? but that is a small taste of what's to come. The climactic final healing right, that we are all looking forward to is the full resurrection of the body, right? the life without end. It's the restoration of the entire world where mankind can finally do what we were made to do in the beginning. Right, to image God by reflecting his glory to all of creation. Right? We're no longer weak and disabled by sin, no longer enslaved to Satan, but rather servants of the God who loves us. But that's not, unfortunately, that is not all we see in the story. Right? Because while Jesus' presence brings healing to human nature, there is a different outcome for the leader of the synagogue. The leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded by telling the crowd, there are six days when work should be done. Therefore, come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. So notice, he's angry at Jesus, but instead of addressing Jesus directly, he addresses the crowd. Do you find that interesting? I found this really interesting. Why is it? Why does he do that? And I think there's actually a clue from the context. Right? Notice how in verse 17 it says, all his adversaries were humiliated. There's no other adversaries actually mentioned in this story. Right? So why is it plural? It's because Luke is lumping this ruler into the group that opposes Jesus from way back 
in chapter, uh, in chapter 11, right? That's where this whole extended dialogue began about who's in, who's out, right? So you read in, in Luke 11, woe to you Pharisees, you love the front seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. And he said, woe to you experts in the law, you load people with burdens that are hard to carry, and yet you yourselves don't touch these burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, experts in the law. You have taken away the key to knowledge. You didn't go in yourselves, and you hindered those who were trying to go in. When he left there, the scribes and Pharisees began to oppose him fiercely and cross-examine him about many things. They were lying in wait to trap him in something he said. All right, so you see how the synagogue leader fits right into this group. He likes the front seat. He clearly can't relate because everybody at Hallows likes to sit at the back, <laughs> right? But he wants the attention. He wants the honor. He wants the prestige, like Jake over here. Just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Jake gets it because he's the only one who knew who uh, Jesus was talking to in John 3, 16. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. So he wants, he wants the honor and the prestige. And now, now that God has shown up in the flesh, right, and God is healing people, right, this synagogue leader is envious. He's envious of the attention. He's like, hey, pay attention to me, right? I'm in charge here, right? And so what does he do, right? He loads the people up with burdens, right? He's trying to prevent others to come to Jesus, saying, don't be healed. Don't be set free. It's a Sabbath. You've got to tough it out for one more day. Come back tomorrow. He's acting like Cain. Cain was jealous of his brother. This guy is jealous of Jesus. He's filled with envy. He's fully enslaved to sin. Jesus is setting people free from bondage to Satan. But this leader doesn't want them to have that freedom. And he doesn't want it for himself. He's trying to keep others bound. He's become just like the serpent trying to drag people down into death with him. Right? And Cyril, that same church father, says, you know, says to that leader, you are not really angry on account of the Sabbath, but because you see Christ honored and worshiped as God, and you are frantic and choked with rage and pine with envy, you have one thing concealed in your heart and profess and make pretext of another, for which reason you are most excellently convicted by the Lord, who knows your vain reasons, and you receive the title which befits you in being called hypocrite and dissembler and insincere. That's what Jesus does. He, he exposes the silliness of the synagogue leader's opposition. Right? This isn't a challenge for Jesus. Right? You know, Jesus, he's the Lord. He exposes that hypocrisy. And the leader, instead of receiving the healing of his soul, is instead humiliated in front of the crowd. Right? He's humiliated by the God that he chose to oppose. Right? These are the same people that Jesus wept over, saying, I wish I could gather you under my wings, but you are not willing. And there's a warning here for us too. God has come to set us free from slavery, to Satan, sin, and death. Right? He heals the sick and the hurting, making us stand straight so we can glorify God, but we can oppose him. We can reject his healing. Right? And the witness of the whole section is that it's not going to end well if we do. 
So as we wrap up and we think about what this means to us, I want, to, I want us to place ourselves in the crowd. Verse 17, the whole crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things that he was doing. Right? But at this point, we are, we are still a long way from Jerusalem. Right? We got, what, like six more chapters. <laughs> right? And when we get there, it's people in the crowd who call for Jesus to be crucified. Right? But it's also people from the crowd who follow him to the cross, mourning for him. And we see here, this case study, we see two responses to Jesus. Right? And with a the theme of this whole section ringing in our ears, we should remember right, that God's kingdom is coming, and with it a day of judgment. And some people are going to be healed, and some will be humiliated. And so we should take seriously Jesus' warning right, to repent or you will perish likewise. Right? Jesus is calling people to be faithful. Right? And he's going to spend these 10 chapters, right, this whole journey to Jerusalem, teaching us what it looks like, what it means to be faithful. Right? And he wants to heal us right, so that being restored by him to health, you can walk with him and you can glorify God. He wants to set you free so you can freely follow him. Right? He wants to gather you in. Right? He wants to make you new, to make you part of his kingdom and the resurrection to come. Right? And the choice before each of, before each of us each and every day, is to follow him and find healing or to reject him to our peril, right? So now, uh, for those of us who have chosen to follow him, I think George is going to come up in a minute, uh, and we're going to obey one of his commands, which is to partake of his body and blood in communion. And before they do that, we're going to pray. Lord Jesus, um, we, we come and we confess you. You are, uh, you are the God who came among us. Uh, you lowered yourself. You became a man. Uh, you came among us to heal us, to set us free, um, so that we could turn and we could follow you, Lord. God, we pray uh, that you would have mercy on all, uh, all of our uh, sins and of our enslavement to sin, that you would heal us of all the ways that we're broken. We're broken physically, we're broken mentally, broken emotionally, broken spiritually, God, that you would restore us to new life, that you, uh, that you would give us in this day enough of a foretaste of the resurrection to come, God, that we would have the strength to keep going, to keep following you, Lord, into the day you take us home or you come again to make everything new. So we pray, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.